0: You're listening to Law and Gospel on this Wednesday, May the 1st, in the year of our Lord 2019. Being a Wednesday, it's Bible Study Wednesday, where we're encouraging congregations to meet together in the morning at the church, or folks having groups over to their house to listen to the Bible study that I'm about to do, after which you have uh, occasion to talk about it. We're going to Encourage you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel 37, that's in the Old Testament, of course. And some of you who may have been listening yesterday will recall that I actually did a sermon on this here at the LCMS International Center. And so you're saying, well, wait a minute, I heard the sermon. Am I going to get anything out of the Bible study? Well, let me share with you something that pastors know pretty well, but a lot of people may not. I make a big distinction between, for example, a Bible study and a sermon. A uh, Bible study gives you insights into the text, uh, talks about things that you may not be aware of by reading the English. Whereas a sermon takes those insights, may share some of them in the sermon, but has as its purpose to use them in a law and gospel format, which I did in the sermon yesterday. But there's a third thing that pastors do, and that's to prepare for the sermon. I remember Dr. Martin Charlemagne, one of my great professors, had 15 steps in preparing a sermon. And he often would say that for every minute that you preach, you will probably be doing about two hours of study. So for a 15-minute sermon in the chapel, it could have been 30 hours. Now, I'm not doing that that often because I've looked at a lot of these passages, preached on them, etc. so I can go back. But there's always new things that I, were, that I was unaware of. And so what we're going to be sharing with you today in the Bible study are things that I did not mention in the sermon uh, as clearly as I'm going to do right now because of the study that I had done prior to the preparation of the sermon. Ezekiel chapter 37. Many of you would be aware that this is the incident of the dry bones in the valley that come to life. So without further ado, let's start looking at chapter 37, verse 1. Ezekiel is talking. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. So we're presuming that this is a vision that Ezekiel had. Perhaps it was in a a dream, or perhaps it was something that he was seeing in front of him. But that's what is meant by the hand of the Lord was upon me. And he sat down in the middle of the valley, full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, they were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. So all it was were skeletons. And he said to me, son of man... Can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Now, I want to make a point before we go on further, is that there are a number of individuals, and you just have to look on the internet to see this, who think that this is talking about the resurrection from the dead that will occur on the day of judgment that those who are just bones in the grave will be raised from the dead, and therefore, this is really talking about the last day. Well, the problem with that is God says what these bones are, and that's found in verse 11. So I want to go down there because that's very, very important. Son of man... These bones are the whole house of Israel. Now, he's not talking about the house that's buried, but these are the living people of Israel. Remember, uh, Jerusalem is under siege. The Babylonians are coming in. They're destroying the city. They're taking many people into captivity. And why is that? Because these people became idolatrous. They no longer worship the true God. And so from God's point of view, they are like dead bones. Jesus talks about that in regard to the Pharisees. They're the walking dead because they do not trust him as the Messiah. To prove to you that these bones refer to Israel, people who are alive, Look at verse 11, the second part. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. That's the way God looks at unbelievers, as dry bones. And so with that understanding, this isn't talking about judgment day, as it's talking about conversion day. In verse 4, let's go back to that. God says to Ezekiel, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Then verse 7 begins, so I prophesied as I was commanded. Whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) I thought God just said in verses 5 and 6 that he was the one that will be causing breath to enter into them and to put on them flesh, skin, so that they will live. So what's Ezekiel doing this prophecy as he was commanded. This is a really, really important point. For example, in many services, we begin with a confession of sin on the part of the members of the congregation, and that's followed by what we call the absolution. I, as a pastor, say upon this, your confession... I by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word announce the grace of God unto all of you and in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. Uh, Another form says, and by his authority. You see, I as a pastor, I have no power to forgive sins. But I have authority to do so. Now, how can I help explain that? I've done this before. A judge, in and of himself, he has no power to send somebody to jail. But he has the authority to do so. After a man is found guilty by a jury, a judge can say, 20 years in jail. And he does that on the authority of the people who have made him a judge. He doesn't have power to send anyone to jail, but he has authority. In the same way, pastors, we don't have any power to forgive sins, but we have the authority to speak on behalf of Jesus. So we're already hitting a really important point here. Proper Bible study teaching, proper preaching is simply repeating what God would have us to say. That's why I've often said, and you heard me, if I ever say something on this program and you disagree with it, well, give me a call on Open Mic Friday. And if I can't show you a Bible verse that backs up what I said, turn the station. I'm a false teacher. That's what's really known about Lutheranism is that what we teach and preach is according to God's Word, In fact, if you take a look at the Apostles' Creed, every phrase is a quote from a Bible verse. And Luther's small catechism, uh, after the catechism is put down in a book, they have what's called an Enchiridion, which is an explanation with a backup of Bible verses. And every phrase in Luther's small catechism is backed up with Bible verses. So when somebody says... Uh, what does Luther mean that Jesus descended into hell? Well, then we go to 1 Peter chapter 3, and whatever that says, that's what is meant. So there's no distinction in proper preaching and teaching between what God has commanded us to say and what we are saying. God is just using our voice. I'll give you another example. An infant is brought to the church in order that they would be removed from the kingdom of Satan and put into the kingdom of God. We call that through the sacrament of holy baptism. I don't have any power to do that, but I have the authority to baptize a child in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And as I go through the baptismal rite, it is God who is doing what I am saying, because I am simply following his command to say the proper words. That also includes the Lord's Supper. Take, eat, this is the body of Christ. Take, drink, this is the blood of Christ. You think I got power to have bread and wine be in, with, and under the body and blood of Christ? No, no. But that's what Jesus says in 1 Corinthians 11, and when that is done properly, then the person is receiving the true body and blood of Christ, because it's an action of God. He's just using my words. He's just using the bread that we make and the wine that we produce to do that sacrament. So this is what's happening with Ezekiel. Yes, Ezekiel is the one doing the prophecy, but it's very clear from verses five and six that God is the one causing the flesh to come on, the skin to come on, and breath to come on. So we go to verse seven. So I prophesied as I was commanded, says Ezekiel, and as I prophesied, that is, as he is saying the words from God, there was a sound, And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bones. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then God says to Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath. Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. Now the word breath here is also the word for spirit, and so it's very clear. If you recall Genesis chapter one, after God had fashioned man out of the dust on the gro- of the ground, what happened? He breathed into him the breath of life, and sure enough, verse ten. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. It's at this point that God says to Ezekiel, the son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel, because they said our bones are dried up and our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. Now, this is a very important verse to keep in mind, because... We need to understand passages as either being law or gospel. And when I say a passage is law, I don't mean just that it's speaking law like commandments or ordinances. I'm saying that the effect of the law is also being heard. I'll give you a good example from the New Testament. Pharisee and a publican. The, Pharisee, uh, the publican says, God, be merciful to me, a poor sinful being. The uh, Pharisee says, thank God I'm not like that guy over there. He <laughs> says, I tithe, I fast. See, there's no repentance on the part of the Pharisee. But there is repentance on the part of the publican. Where did that repentance come from? Now, this is a really most important point, And it was kind of the... Um, seed of the sermon yesterday. A lot of people think, when they think of law and gospel, or think of repentance and salvation, that God works through the gospel to create faith in the heart so a person is saved. That's the work of God. But when it comes to repentance, and I hear this a lot, particularly from other denominations, repentance is something that you decide to do. You decide to be repentant of your sin. And so therefore, a lot of people give the impression God is really not part of your repentance. He doesn't start working on you until he sees repentance. Well, I really disagree with that. Because proper repentance comes about by understanding the law's effects on you. You, you hear a commandment, Thou shalt not covet, and then you find yourself coveting. And you can't stop it. How do you come to repentance? Because you're recognizing God's word that that coveting is a sin. So the point I really want to make right now is that not only the gospel is used by God to create salvation and faith, but the law is also used by God, not to create salvation, because the law is not a means of grace. But God uses the law to create fear and a recognition of verse 11. Our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. Now, why is that important? That is important because a lot of people have the impression That when I preach the gospel, talking about Jesus dying on the cross, the forgiveness of sins, the robe of righteousness, I just say those words, and the Holy Spirit can create faith in a person. But then when they talk about repentance, now that's something I have to persuade a person to do. I have to tell them, you know, you're disobeying the law of God, you better repent. No. The work of repentance is also the work of God. It's not our work. And, well, we can give you a Bible verse. When Jesus is talking about his work in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, listen to this. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. Now listen to the next words. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Well, what's the killing? What's the wounding? That is the law having its effect upon a sinner. And who's doing it? God. Is doing it. Just like God, according to verse 12, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. Now that's verse 14. If you go back to chapter 36, God makes clear to Ezekiel that he will put the Spirit within people through the washing of water. If that isn't pointing up holy baptism, I don't know what is. Then very clearly, at the end of verse 14, then you shall know that I am the Lord, I have spoken, I will do it. But how's he doing it? He's doing it through the words you use. So what's the main point that I'm trying to make today? It is clear that when we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we often have an understanding that a person can be brought to faith by hearing the many blessings of what Jesus offers us because of his death and resurrection. And so we speak the gospel and we kind of sit back and let the Holy Spirit do his work. I'm telling you that also ought to be our attitude when we speak the law. We all know of the great problem that we are having in the church today. That is, a number of young people are leaving the church I am convinced that they're leaving the church, not because they disagree with the doctrine of Jesus Christ or that he died, he rose, etc. They don't like our morality anymore. They don't like that the church opposes abortion, homosexuality, gay marriage, and so forth. Now, how do you reach to these young people? Do you use the law in such a way that you slam them? You say, boy, if, if you don't repent, now you could go to hell. Now that may be true, but is that the approach you use? I think the best approach that can be used is found in the Sermon on the Mount. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes through a number of the commandments and simply states what they say. Uh, for example, you've heard it said of old, "Thou shall not kill. But I tell you, even if you have a bad thought about someone or say a bad word against them, guess what? Then you will suffer the pangs of hell. And he says that in a very calm voice, just speaking the law. How many people came to faith, first of all, by recognizing what the law was saying and therefore became repentant? That that was the whole task of John the Baptizer. Remember, he gives all kinds of helpful notes to those who are to be repentant. But then he makes the point, the one following me, though, is far greater than I. I I'm not even worthy to tear, tie off his shoes because he will bring you the Holy Spirit. And he'll do that with water. And that's baptism. In In other words... The law always precedes the gospel. But what we need to understand is that even though we're saying the words, the effect is always done by God. And so simply speaking to young people, what is the word of God? And then if they don't come to church, we think we failed. No, we are successful when we repeat the word of God, either law or gospel, and then leave the results up to the Holy Spirit. Why some are saved and others are not, there is no answer for that in the Bible. You, you'll find out when you get on Judgment Day. But our task isn't to use our reason, uh, use various methods of logic to try and get people to be repentant, and then to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is impossible. Nobody can come to faith except by the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't use our reason or rationality. What he uses is the Word of God. And that's why, even though God says, I will cause breath to enter them and they will live he then commands Ezekiel to prophesy, and as he prophesies, God does his work. I can't tell you how many times in my congregation I had for 28 years, one of the things I was taught by Pastor Walter Hoffman, who I really uh, looked up to, was make sure that you visit your shut-ins, your hospital calls, but also those who are delinquent from church. Because a lot of times they're delinquent without realizing what they are doing. And visiting them, encouraging them to come to church, and using a little Bible study to tell them the great gifts that they receive in a divine worship service can make all the difference in the world. And that did happen, where you'll visit a delinquent and they show up. Do I take credit for that? No. I'm like Ezekiel. I'm simply saying the words that God has commanded me to say, and God does the miracle. I'm Tom Baker. You just listened to Law and Gospel on this first day of May. What we're going to be looking at tomorrow for Rumination Thursday with Wes Reimnitz is a subject that I pray you'll listen to. We haven't quite decided which one. He always has a number, and we'll be looking at them and giving you a law gospel perspective in order to comfort you in this reality in which we live. Till tomorrow then, I'm Tom Baker. God bless.